All right, as you're seated, if you would open in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20, beginning reading in verse 10. We'll return to that Romans passage at the end of this morning's sermon, and hopefully you'll know why by the time we get there. Let me read an excerpt from our passage this morning. 2 Samuel 20, beginning in verse 10. Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bikri. One of Joab's young men stood over Amasa, saying, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. Now Amasa had been writhing in blood in the middle of the highway, and a man had seen that all the troops stopped. So he moved Amasa from the highway to the field, and he threw a garment over him, because he realized that all those who encountered Amasa were stopping. When he removed him from the highway, all the men passed by, and they followed Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bikri. So a few years ago, we had an occasion to go to Nashville, and uh, were there on a Sunday, went to the church of a pretty prominent pastor uh, at that time, and uh, were able to uh, listen to his teaching, really excited to do so, had not not done that before. And uh, honestly, uh, while I was uh, listening to the sermon, the sermon was kind of meandering, and I was like, I'm not sure what's going on. And then Bro Man, and he's in his 70s, um, he ended his sermon, like he got to the end, he's like, all right, uh, uh, that's my sermon, I hope you like it. And then he walked off. Like, that's the way, and I was like, man, I am so envious of that. Like, one day, I want to end a sermon, just, that's my sermon, I hope you like it, right? Um, When I read chapters 20 and 21 of 2 Samuel, that's what I wanted to do this morning. I wanted to read the entire two chapters, and then, that's the Bible, I hope you like it. Uh, uh, It is an odd two chapters. Uh, If we're keeping score, this is by far the most difficult sermon to preach, and it is the most difficult sermon in these, uh, this series to navigate. And it's difficult not so much because of the content. We've had some difficult uh, sermon content, I think, like uh, uh, the Tamar sermon or even Dave and Bathsheba. Like that, those are difficult texts. They're kind of a minefield, and you're, you're trying to navigate some layers of complexity. But this is not difficult in that same way. This, these two chapters, they're sandwiched between the end of Absalom's rebellion that we saw last week, so chapters 15 through 19, and then if you flip forward and look in chapter 22, even if you don't read the entirety of that text, you'll notice that the, the indentation of your scriptures, we have a song here, where we've got kind of a David reflecting a song of thanksgiving. So between that story of rebellion and between the song of praise of David, we get two chapters that are a bunch of short, choppy stories that are gory, bloody, they're gross, and they don't seem to have any organizing thread to connect them together. So I want to start a little bit different way this morning um, before we kind of jump into that passage, and I want to give some encouragement to Christians. So in just a minute, we'll, we'll attempt to apply this text more broadly to Christian and non-Christian alike. But before we get, get going this morning, um, encouragement to Christians specifically and ask, why should you even care about passages like this? And more specifically, why in your own personal devotional Bible reading should you engage hard passages, skippable passages, passages that don't just leap off the text, uh, off the page, 
uh, at you. Let me suggest three reasons to consider passages like this. Number one, are these up there? Can we advance the slide? Are these there? Just I want to see if, yep. Uh, nope. Okay, great. So number one, by considering the whole of Scripture, even the difficult passages, we're better able to understand the overall flow of the Bible. So by engaging uh, all of the Bible and specifically difficult passages, we're better able to get our heads around the big story of Scripture. So one of the things that can happen is if you're too quick just to fast forward through, and you do this with podcasts or you do it with, you know, right, you get bored and so you advance the, the scene. If you do that, it's very easy to kind of lose the scope and sequence so this is a little bit of a transitional scene for us, but it helps us place ourselves in the overall story. So that can be incredibly helpful. Um, idea number two, by considering the whole of Scripture, even difficult passages, we train ourselves to do hard things. We train ourselves to do hard things. So it, it, I think we can all say, and again, I'm speaking to Christians, that there's a temptation to kind of ease out of difficult prayer, difficult evangelism, hard conf uh, conflict resolution. So this can be a habit for us to say, when I get to something hard, I, I, I don't need to cop out on that. And if personal Bible reading can be a means by which you train yourself to push through hard things, that's a really good thing. And then lastly, by considering the whole of Scripture, even the difficult passages, we remind ourselves that God gave us this Bible, and it's all for our good. God gave us this Bible, and it's all for our good. Said more succinctly, we can say God doesn't waste words. So if he intended you to have this Bible, then we should ask the question, well, what's in this text that would be profitable, that would be encouraging? That would be for my good. So, better able to understand the overall flow, training myself to do hard things, and considering, why did God give this? Why did he speak this? So with that in mind, let's consider our passage this morning. And here I'm going to uh, orient the same general flow as what I did last week. What I want to do is, is just tell you the story. Okay, we'll spend about 10 minutes doing that. I just want to tell you the story of these chapters then idea number two, I want to try to place you in the story. I want to help you see that this story isn't just a historical reality, but you show up in this story as well. And then area three, I want to say, how do we live in such a way that we don't repeat the flaws of these chapters? Okay, so what's the story? Where's our place in this story? And then how do we live out a different story? Here's the, the scene. Let me tell you the story of these chapters. So start back in uh, chapter 20. We'll just kind of spot check ourselves with some scripture that I'll read and then I'll summarize uh, a good number of portions here. So in verses 1 and 2, we have another wicked man. Sheba is this guy's name, not as prominent as Absalom, but he's attempting to split the nation. So uh, rivaling uh, Absalom here. We don't have a lot of placement of who this guy is other than that he's a descendant of Saul. So we have another descendant of Saul who's attempting to split the nation. And the king this time, King David, says we got to take him out or he's going to do way more harm than Absalom did. So we've got somebody, a rival, trying to split the nation. The king says we're not going to play games this time. We're going to take it out. David knows there was a near miss with Absalom, so he's not wanting to have it happen again. So he concludes, look in verse 4. The king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to me within three days and be there yourself. 
Amasa went to summon Judah, but he took longer than the time allotted to him. So David said to Abshai, Sheba, son of Bikri, will do more harm than Absalom. Take the Lord's soldiers and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and elude us. So Joab leads a group to take the threat out. But we have this, uh, the introduction of Amasa here. He's not the threat. Sheba is the threat. But Amasa takes longer than the time that's intended. And so it becomes really clear to David that he's actually playing for the other side. Rather than getting the troops together to go fight on David's behalf, uh, it seems that he's playing both sides. So when they meet him, this goes down. Verse 8. Joab, David's military leader, was wearing his uniform, and over it was a belt around his waist and a sword and its sheath. He approached, and the sword fell out. Joab asked Amasa, are you well, my brother? And then with his right hand, Joab grabbed Amasa by his beard to kiss him. Amasa was not on guard against the sword in Joab's hand, hand so Joab stabbed him in the stomach. And with it, his intestines spilled out on the ground. Joab did not stab him again. And Amasa died. So perhaps we could make a tentative conclusion. Long hair and big beards are bad, right? Last week, long hair gets you hung in a tree. This week, beards get you stabbed in the stomach. Um, but the problem is, this isn't really the, the point. Uh, Amasa's the dude that's kind of the middleman here. The real issue is still Sheba, and he's still leading a revolt. So they continue to rally the troops. He's holed up in a place that's ironically a city called Abel. Okay? Uh, so Sheba is in the city, and David and his troops go out against the city. But there's a wise woman in the city who seems, sees David's troops battering the wall around the city, and she says, hey dudes, hold, hold up. She doesn't say, hey dudes, hold up, but generally that's what she says. Verse 19, this, uh, she's described as a wise woman in the city. She says, I am one of the peaceful and faithful in Israel. But you're trying to destroy a city that's like a mother in Israel. Why would you devour the Lord's inheritance? Joab protested, never. I would not devour or demolish. That's not the case. There's a man named Sheba, son of Bigri. He's from the hill country of Ephraim, who has rebelled against, the king, against King David. Deliver this one man, and I will withdraw from the city. The woman replied to Joab, watch. His head will be thrown over the wall to you. The woman went to all the people with her wise counsel, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bikri, and they threw it to Joab. So he blew the ram's horn, and they dispersed from the city, each to his own tent. Joab returned to the king in Jerusalem. I mean, how's that for a fun chapter, friends, right? You get my point now. Like, uh, here's the Bible. I hope you like it. We got a guy bleeding out in the street and like a dude perfect trick shot with a dude's head over the wall here. And this is the totality of the chapter. Uh, the, the, the rebellion is stopped by a random wise woman. We're not told how she cut off his head, how this whole deal went down, merely that it happened. And then chapter 21 picks up with something of a timestamp. The next scene, there's famine in the land. We're told three years. We're not told to place this when it started. Some commentators suggest that this famine started way back before the David uh, Uriah uh, Bathsheba episode. So it's not indicating three years from 20 to 21. But what we see is a, a situation that gives us some sense of the significance of the moment. There's a famine. And we know as good students of the scriptures that a famine is indicative of God's judgment. Something's not right. And this famine is a means by which God is attempting to get the attention of the people. 
So what's up this time? Verse 1 tells us. It's due to Saul and his bloody family. Interesting language there, right? Because he killed the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not Israelites, but rather a remnant of the Amorites. The Israelites had taken an oath concerning them, but Saul had tried to kill them in his zeal for the Israelites and Judah. Now, a bit of backstory, if you're uh, trying to familiarize with yourself with the Bible, uh, most of your Bibles are going to have a little superscript number or letter there that's going to point you back in the Bible to other places. This is a really good place to use some of that, or some of you that have fast fingers to use your phone and do a little, like, what's going on there? Like, what, what's the... What's the story? What happens? Because the writer here is assuming that we know stuff that most Bible readers just don't, don't piece together. So the backstory: when the Israelites were instructed to take out the land and drive out the inhabitants, specifically under Joshua and his leadership, to take the people into the land, uh, the Gibeonites were a group of people, a group of inhabitants in the land that were meant to be destroyed and uh, driven out, but they um, played nice. So they came to the Israelites and they said, hey, don't kill us. Let's make a treaty together and we'll just kind of coexist in the land peacefully. You don't have to destroy us. You can dwell with us. We're not going to cause you any problems or any issues. So they, they played it nice. Joshua agreed. He made a formal treaty with the Gibeonites. However, he enslaved them and they became for Israel uh, woodcutters and water carriers in the nation. So they were an enslaved people in the nation. A long time later, fast forward, and this is the critique that's made in verse 1. Under Saul's reign, Saul violated this treaty. So uh, they said, we're going to play nice with the Gibeonites. We're going to let them dwell in the land. But Saul, and we're told here, he was attempting to uh, uh, kill them off in his zeal for the Israelites and Judah. So sin's done in the past. He says, we're going to, to settle the score so now God's saying, these people were wronged. The Gibeonites were wronged. There's a nation that's suffering for sins done in the past here, what Saul had done. So David called some of the remnant uh, that was still around, and he said, hey guys, hey Gibeonites, what should we do to make, make things right with you? How can we atone for the issues that have happened uh, in the past? And the Gibeonites say, we don't want money, and we don't want just some random Israelites killed. We want specifically Saul's line to suffer. Okay, so verse 5 of chapter 21. They replied to the king, As for the man who annihilated us, and here we're speaking specifically of Saul, and plotted to destroy us so that we would not exist within the whole territory of Israel, let seven of his male descendants be handed over to us so that we might hang them in the presence of the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen. David says, all right, we'll do it. We, we got to make amends for the sin that's happened in the past. So he again, and Mephibosheth kind of hovers over these stories. He again spares this one beloved descendant of Saul, but he picks seven other men. You can read their names there in the text. They're a pronunciation nightmare. He picks seven men from Saul's family, and he offers them up. They died to appease the wrath of sin done in the past. They were hanged, you know, this is how the scripture read, hanged them in the hill in the presence of the Lord. The seven of them died together. They were executed on the first day of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So then we have this random scene. Others uh, from Saul's line mourn. 
And David wanted to give these men a proper burial. So the weird of the weird, he goes and collects the bones from Saul and Jonathan that the people had still kind of kept gathered together. And he takes their bones and he takes the bodies of these men that were hanged and he mixes their bones together as a way of uh, somehow uh, giving them a proper burial intermixes them, the bones of these sacrificial men, and then buries the bones of Saul and Jonathan and these seven together. Then verse 14. After this, God was receptive to prayer for the land. So in some way, this activity appeases God, and the famine stops, and God is hearing the people once again. Our final scene begins in verse 15 and following. Notice the pesky Philistines are still around. They're still around harassing Israel. It's weird to say the word pesky when you're talking about a bunch of giants. These dudes are brutes, and they're trying to take David out. And it's actually kind of the flip of what we've been reading before. The Philistines obviously know the story of Goliath, and they know David. Uh, and, and so they want to, 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 get, uh, to avenge this activity. They want to get even. They want vengeance for their giant's death, and they want to crush the king. So we've got four mentions of fights at the end of chapter 21. Verse 17, one giant is killed. Verse 18, another is killed. None of these killed by David specifically. Verse 19, another is killed. And then finally in verse 20, at Gath, there was still another battle. This is the repetition of the language in 17, 18, and 19. There was still another battle. A huge man was there with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He too was, a descendant, was descended from the giant. He taunted Israel. Jonathan, son of David's brother Shimei, killed him. The four were descended from the giant in Gath, specifically speaking of Goliath, and were killed by David and his soldiers. Isn't it interesting as we read the Bible? I mean, in some ways, this is a cooler story than David and Goliath, right? While the fanfare of the stones with David and Goliath and uh, Mr. 24 Digits gets almost no mention, you probably never even heard of that dude, right? But that dude is a cool man, all right? Perhaps um, it's because these giants' names were all way more difficult to pronounce than Goliath, so he got the fanfare. I don't think that's the point. I think what we see happening is David and Goliath happens at the beginning of the king's reign. There's a ton of hope and promise. This is going to be a time when uh, God ushers in peace and prosperity, when the nations are driven out. And now we get these choppy one-verse repetitions of giant squabbles. And it's a reminder for us of how far the nation has fallen. These aren't notes of promise anymore. Here's your king, your deliverer. But they're, inner, they're, they're, they're squabbles among the peoples that are demonstrating sin is still, still plaguing the people. And it's just a matter of time before things unravel completely. It's the bloody sword of the kingdom that was promised to never leave David's house. And it's a precursor to the coming outright divisions and exile that are going to be the result of God's judgment for these people. And frankly, and just in summary, chapters 20 and 21 are a terrible way to live. They're just a terrible way to live. 
I mean, all jokes aside, stabbing insiders, cutting off heads, hanging people to avenge for past sin, continuing to, uh, to have to take out giant after giant, all in an attempt to make amends for the implications of sin, this is a painful, painful way to live. And friends, this is where this story easily becomes our story. Because we too, just like chapters 20 and 21, are tempted to try to deal with the implications of sin by getting even. We too, if we're not careful, can live frenzied lives, attempting to put out the forest, the little fires that our sin, our enemies, or our past has caused. I want you to notice that repetition in these chapters. The nation of Israel, the king specifically, is attempting, one, to get even with enemies, two, to get even with sin, and three, to get even with the past. To get even with enemies, to get even with sins that have been committed, and to get even with past mistakes, shortcomings, failure, even past sins of others. And friends, I want you to think very carefully about how that threefold repetition plays out in your life. We may not chop off heads, but we'd sure like to sometimes, wouldn't we? We want to get even with our enemies. Even if our outer behavior doesn't demonstrate it, the inner discourse in our lives often spews hatred towards our enemies. Someone has wronged me, They've caused pain in big or small ways, and all I can think is, I want them to pay. And most of us are, 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 have the veneer of holiness in our lives in such a way that we would never say that outwardly, but this inner discourse suggests, I want them to suffer at somebody else's hands. I just don't want life to go well for them. I want to watch them suffer from a distance. And getting even with our sin? Perhaps seven hanging sacrifices are not your thing, but we all have our form of evangelical penance. An attempt to throw a few coins or Hail Marys out to God to appease some deity for wrongs we know we have done. Some way to make up for my rebellion. I use penance here, uh, speaking spe specifically of what kind of manifests itself in the Catholic tradition. This voluntary, defined, voluntary self-punishment inflicted as an outward expression of repentance. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat myself up for the wrongs that I have done. And, and again, friends, I mean, this might be really small ways. I'm just going to kind of kind of pout. I'm just going to remain distant. I'm going to consistently hang my head in shame. I'm going to disengage. Or it can be in really big ways. In fact, you could be doing it this morning, showing up in church on Sunday as an attempt to tip the cosmic scales in your favor from a week that you've lived out of balance. Maybe Bible reading or a few prayers on the way to work will make up for the evil that is lurking in my heart. I'll make up for my sin by being good. And my past, getting even with my enemies, getting even with my sin, getting even with my past. Far too many Christians 
base their obedience to Christ on an attempt to make up to God for the wrong that we did before coming to faith in Jesus. So if I had a 20-year run of prodigal living, then if I can live 30 good, clean years, then the cosmic scales tip in my favor. The moralistic police deity, when he comes to write me a ticket, will, will tear it up and I'll be free to go. I, I've made up for the wrong that I've done. Friends, living this way, inner dialogue wanting to crush our enemies, penance to make up for our sin, doing good to appease for the past, seeking vengeance will crush your soul. It is a terrible way to live. And if you live this way, you are stepping into the story of 2 Samuel 20 and 21. And if you wonder why your life feels so frenzied, perhaps this could be a reason. So, to conclude, three gospel opportunities, three good news opportunities for all of us who are tempted to get even, to seek to avenge ourselves, to make right the wrong that we have done. Three gospel opportunities, each with a corresponding New Testament passage given for your consideration. First, the life of Jesus provides Christians with a model of love that doesn't seek to get even. The life of Jesus provides Christians with a model of love that does not seek to get even. Consider this passage from 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2 beginning in verse 21. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And then notice the way Peter explains that reality. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want you to focus attention on verse 23. The application of him committing no sin, no deceit in his mouth, is that when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. Some of your texts are going to say revile. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he merely entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What's interesting and instructive about this passage is if anyone had a right to get even, it was Jesus. But he didn't, and even more than that, He's unique in the sense that he could have gotten even. So you don't even know, and I don't even know, if our attempts to get even are just. And even if they are just, we lack the power to make things right that, that, that we want to settle the score against. But not Jesus. After all, he was the eternal son of God. The one that the scriptures are going to speak of as the Lord of all armies. So the outset of his ministry, when Satan tempts him to throw himself off of the high place and the angels will come and bear him up, Satan was exactly right. He was the Lord of all angelic armies. When soldiers and bystanders uh, mocked him and said, take yourself down from the cross, it's ironic because he could have done just that. He had the power to. 
and at his fake trial, he could have defended himself with his words. And he would have been right. But he didn't. The text tells us like sheep led to the slaughter, Jesus remained silent. He did not revile in return. He did not seek vindication. He willingly submitted himself to God and his purposes. And Peter says this is an example that Christians should follow. The trend of what would Jesus do bracelets is rightly applied here. We don't tend to apply it in these ways, but it's rightly applied here. A primary way we do what Jesus would do is we reject the impulse to settle the score. We fight against the temptation to get even. And I'll just be honest, man, this is really tough. This is a place where we got to work out in biblical community in the local church because this is a challenge. Our impulses to get even, to settle the score, are overwhelming at times. I'm a, a blessed pastor in the sense that if you meet a pastor, they can recount difficulty in, in, in this sense, right? I have very few stories in my life of this, but I do have some. Somebody wounds, sometimes unintentionally, but other times it's super intentional. The bullets fly, and sometimes they hit really close to the heart. And many of those bullets are lies. And friends, the drive to vindicate yourself is strong. If others just knew a few little facts, their perception would change. So let, let, me, let me settle the score. Let me clear what has been said. But wisdom and maturity often say no. It says, if I want to pattern my life after Christ, it means I, I often keep my mouth shut. It means I'm willing to let people believe things that aren't true about me because I do more harm and dishonor God's name by trying to clean up my image. And sadly, I can't always say I've chosen that high road. And many times, that high road in public betrays a low road in private where my heart resents the path that I'm forced to walk and rehearses the demise of the person that's wronged me. Rather, 1 Peter 2 reminds me and all of us that when I'm sinned against, I am perfectly positioned to model the pattern set by my Savior, to willingly suffer. And, and let me couch, I'm, I'm not talk. Don't, don't attempt to go more broadly than I'm, I'm speaking. I'm not applying this to a situation of abuse in a marriage, physical abuse. There are certain situations where wisdom dictates you get out. But I am suggesting that often our impulse to set hard boundaries to you've wronged me, so I'm done. I'm not engaging steps us out of a unique opportunity we have to pattern ourselves after Jesus Christ. His life sets a model. Secondly, the sacrifice of Jesus frees Christians from the need to get even. The life of Jesus gives me a model of someone that didn't always try to settle the score. And the sacrifice of Jesus frees me from the, the need to get even. Here, I want you to consider Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, and I want you to notice the, 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 the universality of that. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate 
to one another and hear the one another specifically in the life of the body of Christ and the local church. Forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. Here, I've cherry-picked one cross-reference among many, I mean, a myriad of these in the New Testament that all make the same point. The path of forgiveness is a model of the gospel. It's more than simply the pattern of Jesus' life, but it's a model of the sacrificial death of Jesus who offered himself to God as a wrath-bearing substitute for the sins of his people. When I forgive rather than fight, I am stepping into my Christian identity. I, I am demonstrating in perhaps the most concrete way that I understand the good news that I affirm with my lips and the songs that we sing in the local church. Now, if we measure our efforts at vindication by the wrongs that have been done to us, many times, honestly, the scales tip in our favor. We're right to want to get even. But this passage from Ephesians 4 is encouraging us to measure our attempts to fight back by what Jesus has done for us, or more specifically, the extent to which you've been forgiven in Christ. I fear that many times my efforts at self-vindication undermine the gospel that I profess with my lips. They demonstrate that, that I have a flimsy view of my own sinfulness. And there's another point of application here, and it's in our efforts to make amends for our sins. I can forgive you, but the question is, what do I do about my, my own stuff? There's a time and place, I think the New Testament commends us, for restitution for our sins, for making things right for the wrongs that we've done. But this is a far cry from penance. Most specifically, the idea of penance in its essence is, I'm going to atone for my own sins by paying God back for the wrongs that I've done. Rather, Christians have an opportunity when they stare in the face their sin to receive by grace the gift of forgiveness that Jesus' death accomplished on their behalf. While it may seem heroic to beat yourself up for the sins that you've committed, it's actually a very anti-gospel position. It's saying, thanks Jesus for forgiving me of my mess, but but now it's on me to deal with the issues of my sin. When we make ourselves a martyr, we actually undermine the gift of the one who died in our place. I'm not, I don't like the language. I'm not forgiving myself, but I am embracing the forgiveness that is mine as a free gift from what Christ has done. I'm receiving that. So the sacrifice of Jesus frees me from the need to get even with my enemies and to get even for my own junk. And then lastly, the victory of Jesus encourages Christians to allow God to get even. So the life is an example. It's a pattern. I don't have to get even. I can be taken advantage of. Death reminds me I don't have to set all the scores with my enemies can model the gospel to them, and I can speak the gospel to myself by forgiving myself, accepting, receiving the forgiveness that is mine through Christ. And then lastly, victory of Jesus 
encourages Christians to allow God to get even. And this is the word that Micah read from Romans 12, 18 through 21. I'll read again because it's been a minute. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Again, notice the universality of that claim, with everyone. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you're going to heap fiery coals on his head. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. You notice the connection, don't you, between that and 1 Peter 2? Regarding Jesus, what, what did Peter say? He entrusted himself to God. This is the very thing that Paul is writing here. Entrust yourself. Leave room for the wrath of God. Why? The text tells us specifically, because he judges justly. 1 Peter 2. Here the command is direct, here being in Romans 12. He says, do not avenge yourself. Do not avenge yourself. Now note the implication, note the severity of that. If Paul, through the Spirit of God, says, don't avenge yourselves, then seeking to avenge your, seeking vengeance, seeking to sell the score, seeking, that's called sin. I know it's more palatable, but it's, it's sin. It's a difficult truth. And, and granted, the contours of that have to be worked out in community and prayer. Whereas the, the line between speaking truth and avenging ourselves. But there is a caution here for us. Often, I'll, I'll make this personal to me. Often my efforts to want the truth to be known are less about the truth being known and more about how I'm going to look. More about me feeling a sense of peace. In order to heed the instruction of Romans 12, when given a choice, I should be content to live at peace even if the truth isn't fully known. Why? Romans, or verse 19 tells us. Because when I'm content to live at peace, when I'm not seeking to avenge myself, I leave room for God's wrath. That's super instructive. If we step into the gap, we try to feel, fill the relational distance with vindication, then I am usurping God's place as a just judge. He's fully capable of judging because unlike us, he is a just judge. So I leave room for his wrath. That wrath might be seen in this life. When he brings conviction for wrongs that have been done. Often this happens in the church. Think, think about relational conflict in the church. I know it never happens, but imagine that it did. Um, somebody gets their feelings hurt. Somebody lies about another person. Wrongs happen. Pain is done. And the offended person, let's say offended person, just for the sake of the argument, offended person uh, gets mad and lashes out in response. They undermine themselves. Uh, they, they undermine the claims that are being made in small group. They build a little side coalition to convince you of why the other person is wrong. And over time, fast forward six months, 12 months, they just take their ball and leave. They go to a church across town where that issue is, is no longer present. They separate themselves from the relationship. They might even make it feel better by saying, I've got to have some boundaries. Now imagine the same squabble, but there's a humble person on the receiving end. And rather than reviling in return, 
this person humbly and winsomely continues to love and serve the church. Granted, the relationship is distant, but there's at least presence. And the person on the receiving end isn't adding more fuel to the fire. They're not gossiping as prayer requests. They're not building side coalitions. They're not attempting to manipulate to make themselves look better. They're just grinding it out in love and service to the church. And as the text instructs here, they're actually even willing to do good to the one who's harmed them to look them in the eye, to greet them with a smile, to serve them, to care for them months later, years later. Perhaps the truth of a message like the one that's spoken this morning brings conviction and it compels change. And the offended person goes to the one they've harmed and before receiving the Lord's Supper, confesses wrong that's done and seeks restoration. Friends, what a glorious opportunity to model the gospel. They've left room for the Spirit of God to bring conviction and change. They didn't fill the gap with their relational vindication, but they trusted the Lord to bring about that change in good time. Think about the application of that in your marriage, in your parenting. Are your strong-armed efforts in parenting an effort to get the outcome that you want and not to leave room for the Spirit of God to work on the hearts of your children? But don't let me overpromise and underdeliver in the conclusion. It doesn't always happen, does it? Many times wrongs are never righted on this earth. Many, many, many times, and this is the frustration that David has in the Psalms, the evil person actually prospers. The offended person is never vindicated. They spend their life watching the evil person parade on social media. The score is never settled. Is there an expiration date on our willingness to not get even, to not settle all scores? No, not in this life. God, the just judge, often defers his judgment to the last day when his righteous wrath will be revealed and every score will be perfectly and fully settled. Everything. What is done in secret will be known. Consider the words from Revelation 20. There's a great white throne and one seated, earth and heaven fled from his presence. No one was found in them. I also saw the dead. This is speaking of the unregenerate, those who are not welcomed to the heavenly banquet. The great and the small standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in those books. And a chapter over in Revelation 21. The one seated on the throne says, look, I'm making everything new. Write these words because they are faithful and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. But the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the note here, and the liars... They'll all share in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, there is a coming day of judgment when the just judge will render to each one the just punishment for their offense. It may happen in this life. It may happen in the life to come. But we can resist the urge to get even knowing that the new heavens and new earth will be a place of perfect justice. Even if on this earth, Christians have to slog through the mire of difficulty, we can endure with hope. So, 
at our time of reflection this morning, might I ask you to reflect on how your life models a relentless drive to settle the score, to get even. And might I ask you to reflect on the price that Christ Jesus has paid to free you from the tyranny of chapters 20 and 21 and give you hope to endure forever. Let's pray together. As we do, let me invite you to take a minute or two to reflect on what's been shared this morning from God's word. After a time of personal reflection, I'll conclude us with a prayer. Our Father, we admit that the frenzied activity of chapters 20 and 21 are often a reflection of our own efforts to get even, to settle the score, to vindicate ourselves, to deal with our enemies and our sin and our past in ways that make sense to us, that appease our conscience, that seemingly make things right. We admit that for all the outward activity we spend doing that, there's a lot of inner work, a lot of thoughts and feelings and emotions that are driven from an act to, to get even, to settle the score, to stew on bitterness, divisiveness, to lie, to manipulate, to build coalitions, to make ourselves look better. And we need your Spirit's help. We need your Spirit's help to resist those temptations. We need your Spirit's help to, as much as is possible, to live at peace with all people. We grieve the reality that in many cases, homes and churches, broader communities, resembles chapter 20 and 21 more than we like to admit. And Father, we thank you that through Christ, we have a new and better way to live. We have an example of one who did not vindicate himself, trusted himself to the Lord. We have a sacrifice that deals with sin, and we have a just judge who will perfectly and rightly vindicate all wrongs the last day. So would you help us to embrace the freedom that comes from not having to get even? And would you give us ample reminders of the price that's been paid for us through Christ that calls us to live that way? We ask that for his sake and faith. Amen.